The partner for this episode is North Spore Mushroom Company. You may know I'm a big fan of mushrooms. I love eating fresh mushrooms, but really love the benefits they bring to permaculture designs, including how they cycle nutrients, maintain great soil, and utilize the shadier parts of home gardens. Great for experienced cultivators and beginners alike, North Spore Mushroom Company has everything you need, from bulk-priced sawdust, plug, or grain spawn for your larger permaculture projects, to outdoor log inoculation packages for any type of garden enthusiast. North Spore even has indoor grow-at-home kits that help introduce mushrooms to kids and convert mushroom phobes to fungi fanatics. North Spore is extending an offer to the Permaculture Podcast listeners on their web store at northspore.com. Plan ahead for next spring's projects and use the code PERMACULTURE at checkout to save 10% off your entire order. Oh, and visit their Instagram page for some great mushroom growing tips and advice at North Spore Mushrooms. You'll find links to their web store, Instagram, and a reminder of that discount code in the show notes. The Permaculture Design Course giveaway and fundraiser in cooperation with Verde Energia Pacifica at their farm in Costa Rica ended earlier this month. I'm glad to announce that Nicole Duvent was the winner. Congratulations, Nicole. For those of you who entered but were not selected, your names and email addresses were forwarded to the team so you can take advantage of your discount on a future course. Let them know you entered the giveaway when you reach out in order to claim this reward as a thank you for donating to the campaign. As I've mentioned before, this podcast is made possible by contributions from listeners. Together, you've helped create more than 430 podcasts over the last six years. I'd like to take a moment to thank each and every one of you for that. This show simply wouldn't be possible without you. As I look forward into 2018, I continue to rely on your support to remain in the gift economy and to keep this show free for anyone around the world with an internet connection who can tune in. And asking you for this, I'm not looking to generate excess capital, but I can't work on an empty stomach. As I get older, I can't do this without healthcare either. To put those needs in perspective, if a mere one in seven of the listeners to this show dedicated $1 a month or an annual contribution of $20, I'd be able to make a living wage while taking care of all of my personal needs and those of the podcast. So I'm going to pause here for a moment and encourage you to visit thepermaculturepodcast.com support and invest in this resource for our community. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. To know where we are headed, it's important to know where we are and where we come from. As Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote in his book, Strength to Love, we are not makers of history, we are made by history. With that in mind, in this episode, Maddie Harlan provides a 25-year retrospective on permaculture as viewed through her role as the longtime editor of Permaculture Magazine. As our conversation only reflects on some of her experiences from this period, if you'd like to read many more, then look for her latest book, Fertile Edges, a curated collection of her editor's notes through the years. Let's get to the conversation with Maddie, and I'll join you again afterward. Then, Maddie, can you give us a bit of your biography and background, how you came to Permaculture Magazine, and we can take the conversation from there? So I was born in London, and I grew up there very much in the 60s, actually. I had three big brothers, and they taught me that Levi's were cool and that Jimi Hendrix was even cooler. 
and uh, the Who were busting up their instruments on stages at that time, quite near to where we were living. So that was the kind of environment that I grew up with, uh, which was very urban. Um, but my family ha are of Irish descent. So every summer we'd go to uh, the west coast of Ireland to the most remote and beautiful place in Connemara. And we'd have a few weeks of wildness. And that never left me as a something that I think shaped me very deeply as, as a young person. And how did I get to permaculture? Well, around 1990, Tim, my other half, and I saw a film which was essentially about Bill Mollison. And this was on one of our commercial channels on mainstream TV. And it completely blew Tim's mind. And at the time we were setting up a conservation larger wildlife garden project and he said I, I've got to do permaculture this is you know everything that you could want in life you know you have your biodiversity and you eat it too and at the time I was a little bit concerned because he seriously got the permaculture virus and it took me quite a bit of time to catch up but by 1992 I'd done a full design course and the opportunity came up from our national charity the Permaculture Association in Britain to take what was a quite a substantial newsletter that was being edited by Graham Bell the teacher and author and turn it into a magazine that we could supply to members of the charity but also take into shops and stores around Britain and that in essence and in a nutshell was the very beginning of where we began in permaculture. And other than the garden that you were setting up did you have a background in gardening and horticulture or was it through Tim's kind of gateway into permaculture and an interest in the outdoors that brought all that together? No I didn't have any background in horticulture whatsoever and nor did Tim I was a conservation volunteer and we were both working in publishing and I was also a journalist writing about conservation matters and green issues. So we had an interest in the wider sort of perspective of green living, but we certainly had very few practical skills. I knew how to catch a trout, but I certainly didn't know how to grow a runner bean. And it always amazes me the diversity of people and backgrounds in permaculture. And it was through conversations with some folks who studied with Bill in the, in the early 80s as he was bringing the permaculture design course out into the world was that at that time it seems that he was really teaching to people who were already landscape architects and horticulturists and you know nurserymen and others. And then it was kind of as the second wave comes on as – his first students started teaching other people and writing books that then you have this kind of explosion of people who don't have those backgrounds, but then begin applying this interest to their own lives. And it sounds kind of like that was a good intersection for you as well with this background in journalism and publishing to then take over this newsletter and turn it into what really is our premier magazine for permaculture practitioners. Yeah, I mean, I, I had quite a deep immersion in landscape, not as a designer, but somebody who was 
spending a lot of time in in rural landscapes by that time and had an understanding of traditional uh, woodland crafts and conservation and subjects like that but very much it was it was quite a giant leap into the unknown when we when we started our forest garden and as you observe the person that taught me permaculture design was Lee Harrison and she was one of the first wave of Bill's early teachers uh, that he taught in the 80s in Australia so it was very much like that you know bringing in community activists on my course and people like me with publishing skills and not, as you observed, obvious candidates like designers and horticulturists. And so then you took that Permaculture Association newsletter and that's what became Permaculture Magazine or was there another jump before that happened? No, no, we jumped straight in with two feet to Permaculture Issue one of the magazine in September 1992. And we we weren't just doing it ourselves as little newbies. Uh, so we had guidance from a permaculturist of real standing like Chris Dixon, who has a long-term project in Wales. He was one of our advisors and consulting editors. And we had another person Chris Marsh and she again was on the Permaculture Association Council and of course we had Patrick Whitefield and we worked closely with Patrick as our mentor and teacher and as one of our most important authors of books uh, right up until he he died. Mentioning Patrick brings back a lot because he was someone who was really influential to me early on. And though I never had an opportunity to interview him, we had traded emails and some conversations over the years. And he was always just a lovely, generous person with his time and his thoughts. Very generous to us. I mean, he used to go through every issue of the magazine. And we used to have this process called Slag the Mag. Slag in slang in, in the UK means, you know, criticize it. And uh, we, we just and he made sure that the early magazine issues were technically accurate and, and he really guided us and taught us permaculture design and made sure that we didn't make basic errors through our own lack of education because it takes time to because permaculture is such a huge subject. It takes time to learn and really understand the deep subtleties and also the great stretch of the different types of permaculture around the world. So he was very much a mentor and a guiding light for us. And we taught him how to write books. That beautiful kind of, of symbiotic and reciprocal relationship that occurs as we develop those deep relationships with one another. Yeah, I mean, he was an incredibly close friend, as well as a colleague and a a mentor it was you know it was a great relationship we miss him oh as i know so many of us do his book on temperate climate permaculture was just absolutely amazing for someone who lives here in the mid-atlantic of the united states yes it took a long time i tell you it took two years to design and we really worked very hard editing it and each chapter was then edited by an expert in the subject so we we tried to make it as 
definitive and articulate, but also we wanted it to be accessible. So the way it's written is deliberately not as an academic tome, even though it's a weighty tome, because he wanted people to take it chapter by chapter and for people to be able to understand it. But it is, yeah, it still does astonishingly well as a book, even though it's, um, you know, nearly 10 years old now. And then it was that work, helping others write books, and then the production of the magazine that led you into your role as the editor. My understanding is, is that, was it Tim that started as the editor in the very beginning, and then you took over that role? Yeah. See, I've got an English degree, and um, a third of my degree was actually practical criticism, which is very useful uh, for editing. I had actually written two books uh, myself before we started, so I knew how to write books, and I'd worked professionally as an editor for two other publishing companies before we set up our own, and Tim had been a director of a publishing company, so we hadn't quite sort of rolled up to permaculture without skills. But in the early days, I had a my first daughter, our first book daughter was born in 1989, and the second one was born in 1993. So I wasn't in a position in 1992 to edit the magazine. Um, obviously, I was helping out, but I was very much a, a mummy. But I was editing things like Patrick's first book, Permaculture in a Nutshell, and various other permaculture texts. So I was doing book editing, and Tim was doing the magazine and the book production. But we got to about 1996, and he said, look, you know, you're far more skilled at editing than, than I'll ever be, and I'm doing all the layout and design. How about you, you become the editor? And I found the idea quite terrifying, to be quite honest. I sort of felt like when you're a book editor, you're almost invisible. So I've done over 80 books now since that time. And you're kind of in the background steering and working with authors. But, but in a way, you've got this wonderful invisibility cloak. When you become a magazine editor, you know, you're right in there thrust into the foreground and it's all your fault <laughs> and you know recognizing my relative inexperience but then permaculture was only a few years old anyway it was still very much a baby but I had some wonderful teachers you know David Holgram came and stayed with us and gave us an in deeply intensive permaculture emotion immersion for a week very early on when my second daughter was not even one years old and Max Lindiger from Crystal Waters became a, a friend and you know I've spent spent time with many many different permaculturists from different continents it's been a huge privilege and so I've had many views and different approaches taught to me uh, and then I've had the real pleasure of working with my own authors and evolving things like people care and permaculture with Luby McNamara, working with Aranya with this sort of permaculture design step-by-step -step approach, working with people around renewable energy and technology, working with people on a more philosophical basis, working with Charles Dowding and Stephanie Hafferty recently on 
the real comprehensive no dig lifestyle not only what you grow but then what you do with it afterwards so you know it's been a huge 25 years of real stimulation and privilege for me to work with people like this and I'm not even beginning to mention all the wonderful contributors to permaculture magazine over the years and so then it was your experience with all of those folks over the years and your work on the magazine and then your editor's column that kind of introduced every issue that now has been curated and collected into your new book, Fertile Edges, that shares this long-term 25-year perspective? Yes. I mean, before I started that collection, first of all, we wanted to celebrate 25 years of independent permaculture publishing. And I'd had so much positive feedback about these editorials over the years that my team said, you've really got to publish something. But I wasn't quite sure how to put it together. So I actually went outside my usual network and found a couple of people that I really respect who would advise me on how to produce fertile edges. And the suggestion was that we divided it into six sections and that I would contextualize each period of our our lives that I'm, we're, we're writing about and that it would be partly like what was going on in the world, what was going on in the permaculture world from my perspective, and a little bit of biography of what was going on in our personal lives that had shaped and informed those editorials and those issues. And then all of this is sort of topped and tailed with perhaps a little bit more revealing introduction Uh, to the book about myself and where the edges are for me, uh, not only of ecosystems, but also these cultural edges that we encounter when we immerse ourselves in in permaculture. And, And so that's how it came into being. And then I needed a cover and my daughter, who's, um, a graphic designer and a photographer, uh, was with us one Sunday morning. And I said, how about you design the book? And, do you know, she did it in an hour. The basic idea, she, it just, she was saying, you know, what is a fertile edge? Talk to me about it. And from words, she, it created pictures in her mind. And, and we came up with this, this cover, which is actually the Ganges Delta, which is one of the most fertile but obviously threatened ecosystems in the world. And I'm looking at the cover now. And is this a, a painting or a watercolor that she did to reproduce this with all the colors in the flow? Or It's actually a photograph from NASA. Really? <laughs> yeah. But doesn't it just show you how this flow creates this extraordinary edge between land and ocean and fresh water and land and sky? I mean, it's an extraordinary place on on this planet and we i have to admit that it was the other way up but i inverted it for the artistic license of the ocean also becoming the sky it reminds me so much of some artists who i know the way that this blends together and then to know that this is a picture and the way that we can take that inspiration from the natural world but also the way that our ecosystems have impacted us as human beings for generation after generation after generation and that fascinates me you know i feel that permaculture is 
a process whereby we don't just connect with land, but we connect with an ancestral relationship with that land. And I think that's why permaculture is so powerful, because in a way, it doesn't only restore and regenerate land, it has the capacity through that reconnection to restore and regenerate human culture and our sense of hope for our future, which I think is very, very challenged in our society. It's hard sometimes when you check the world news and you hear about new carbon numbers in the atmosphere or the latest natural disaster or disaster that comes from industry because of a you know, euphemistically an industrial accident or industrial release that then poisons a waterway or the people in an area and the damage that these things do, but then being able to take permaculture and the connections that we have to the space that we're in and the people who are part of our community, find hope for the future, to see the ways that we can move forward, those spaces along the edge where we can expand our circles and bring more people in to continue to make a difference that we as individuals can influence, you know, policy and culture and community as well as the natural world. Absolutely. And I mean, it's essential that we do because we are collectively a visionary movement and we have the capacity to create regenerative systems that could last centuries. And I see that with some of the permaculturists I've worked with over the years And even in my own life with my own small piece of land restoration that Tim and I have been working on for 25 odd years. It's interesting how, you know, books and magazine and land and projects in in my local community, they're all sort of flowering into this 25 year old cycle at the moment. In 25 years, it seems so long in some regards, and yet it's only the very beginning That's right. That's right. With your 25 years of being very central to the growth and movement of permaculture, what has it been like since those early days to see what's come and what's changed and and what some folks such as myself who didn't come to this until much later, what you've experienced that people might not know about with where permaculture is these days? I suppose, first of all, when when we first sort of appeared on the permaculture scene it was a very small um, group of people and nobody knew what we were talking about so we felt very much on the edge and we felt like we needed to really connect deeply with each other to maintain the vision and and the world view of of this wonderful integrated holistic systems thinking way of being in the world and so the you know it was a small club I guess and our aim was always like this is the the best thing one of the best things that we've ever discovered in our lives and it has such a profound logic and it's so easily transferable that you don't have to be a PhD and you know this knowledge can be shared Um, because it's very it's common sense once you get the way of thinking so we wanted to always always that it was exposed to as many many people as possible which is why we chose to publish a magazine that could be sold in stores which was why we, we were always producing books 
that would try and break it down and make it accessible. And I, I suppose what I've observed is, is this sea change now. So earlier this year, I found myself with Albert Bates at the British Commonwealth offices, which are in uh, central London. And I, in front of Paul Hawkin and Janine Benius and others, other luminaries actually, I found myself for five minutes very quickly presenting images and words on um, permaculture and rainforest restoration and showing beautiful photographs that my photographer daughter had taken of uh, the Mayan Mountain Research Farm in Belize, Christopher Nesbitt's place, and Sapphaland, which is one of his students' projects, which is much less developed, but still, even in three years, it was showing all the you know, wonderful signs of design changing what was a completely exhausted citrus farm into this polycultural food forest in the rainforest, really biodiverse. And, you know, I had that privilege of doing that and and really saying, look, this is actually what permaculture can do and we can prove it. And 25 years ago, we couldn't, or very few people could say, I've done this and we can prove it. But there are numerous examples. You know, I could do the same with my patch of land, which was just a bare arable field. It had been ploughed out of fertility. It had lost inches and inches of topsoil. It was There was not a worm in sight and therefore no birds. It was completely the only way the the farmer could grow crops on it was by throwing chemical fertilizers at it you know that the land was barren and so for me that process of regenerating building soil creating biodiversity has been a, a fabulous privilege and learning experience and so to summarize i'd say that the sea changes that it was a theory for most of us particularly Uh, the people who are sort of the second generation not in Australia not Bill's primary uh, students but the next wave coming in the early 90s we we had the instinctual knowledge and the sort of intuition from the observation of nature that if we did a certain set of things it would work but now we can prove it and we can publish books about it and we can write articles about it and make YouTubes. And, and, and that's, I think, permaculture has come of age as an international movement. And there are numerous good examples of how it works, both with the earth and with people. And I think the next phase is going to be about this bigger vision about how do we then share that out for the benefit of the future. And that sharing out for the benefit of the future, you've mentioned several times about people and culture and society. Do you see this next phase being a part of that social engagement, that it's moving more towards people and culture as we've kind of worked on the landscape issues? Well, I think, you know, inevitably we're going to go on uh, learning about the land and 
you've got projects like you've got uh, John Liu, who's just set up the Ecosystems Restoration Foundation, that's first project of setting up a, a restoration camp in Portugal is now live. And that will hopefully be one node of a huge system of restoration camps, taking the knowledge of places like the Lost Plateau and what Tamira Eco Village did and all sorts of other permaculture projects, projects that have been done in Africa and all around the world, taking that body of knowledge and then refining it and applying it. So I don't feel that by any means have we got all the answers to our land stuff, but we, we've got you know, a good body of work already. I believe that we did, you know, we published People and Permaculture by Luby McNamara, and I think people are really beginning to get their heads round her design web, which is about this process of designing projects, and they can be organisational systems, they can even be about personal projects that you want to design and achieve. And it's about the actual process of bringing those goals closer. So that's a piece of work that's ongoing and I think will develop. Luby and I teach together and we're currently working on cultural emergence, which with John Young, she's identified as a extension of the people care design web that she created in her book and we're working on that kind of level it's about you know what is emergent culture and how can we stimulate and encourage it so that we've we've got a wider vision because for me it's not enough that I grow my own food it's not enough that I am a someone who works in my community setting up the Sustainability Centre, which is a 55-acre educational centre for children and adults from all walks of life. That's not enough. You know, fundamentally, we need to unpick the destructive design of our, our culture that is depleting resources at a terrifying rate and destabilising climate. And we, we need to understand what those economic, social and cultural uh, memes are and deconstruct them and have something practical and grounded and effective to replace them. Because it's easy to be an iconoclast and say everything, you know, explain why everything's wrong in the world. But how do we begin to set it right? And that could be... That could be something that if we're lucky, we get to do for the next millennium. But I know that, you know, looking at earth restoration, I know that when you start to repair damaged ecosystems, those ecosystems have a vitality in life of their own and they respond. And I've seen that in my, in my own, on my own land, how quickly we start to repair and species diversities comes back in if it isn't extinct. Being an optimist, I'm hopeful that we can catch this situation in human evolution in time before we really lay waste and have this six mass extinction and we lose the gene banks 
that are so essential to life on Earth. And you're still hopeful that we're early enough in this process that we can prevent that? I think we're at, I think we're at the 11th hour, and I think the next few years will be critical. But I think it's, I know that some environmentalists don't, they think it's too late, that the door's already closed. I'm still feeling, uh, and, you know, looking at the science, for instance, in Paul Hawkins' book, and looking at the work of Eric Tonsmeyer, someone I admire deeply, when we start to do the real scientific number crunching on carbon sequestration in soil, we can do many, many things to restore and, and reverse the declining systems that we have now. But we do need political will. And I think what frightens so many of us is that we're in a critical period where we don't have outwardly political will. I think behind the scenes and in, in Bonn, at the climate talks and in political organisations, there's a huge commitment to, to making change. But our media, our mainstream media, is almost brainwashes us with uh, so much disinformation and nonsense and political figureheads who have far too much uh, power in terms of public opinion. And I think there have been some times I've talked about policy change in permaculture classes. And if I've ever wanted to scare students, talking about going into a, a council meeting or city hall to meet with a politician, I think is one of the most frightening things for many people to be engaged directly in that process, that sometimes it's easier to go with friends and make signs and protest because of, of that kind of a community effort of coming together. But then the other side of political action of helping to craft policy or work on the laws and legal structures, it's just, it's big and it's intimidating and it can be scary. Absolutely. But we have some real shining lights in the world. I mean, one of, one of them is a friend of mine, Polly Higgins, who is um, a English, uh, she's actually Scottish. She's a Scottish barrister, which is sort of like an attorney, I guess. Um, and she is working on ecocide. So just as the UN regards genocide as, as something utterly unacceptable, she's working hard to press policymakers to accept ecocide as a, as a crime. And she's relentlessly energetic. She's just launching another big international campaign. And she's just one example of, of someone who's, who's making a difference. And, and there are many many, many people working persistently behind the scenes at all different levels of policy and, and governance who are far more intelligent, educated and articulate than perhaps the media or their political masters might allow. And one of the things that's been suggested to me is that as permaculture practitioners, the, those of us who have steeped ourselves in this, who have the training and a holistic view of how we can bring these different components together, that it may be a next step for practitioners to start stepping out and finding people such as Polly and others who are doing this kind of work that runs in parallel with our desire for earth care and people care, and that 
we can catalyze a lot of the next changes that are coming. We have a young generation coming through, you know, the millennials and beyond. And some of them are outstandingly talented, clever and insightful people. And I have real faith in the next generation for their talents and abilities. And I see that in my daughters. You know, I hope that humans generally improve on themselves. You know, I feel that Tim and I have improved on ourselves with our, you know, our offspring. So I have that sort of respect and optimism for the vitality and ambition of the next generation who, let's face it, they've got to put up with the world that we are in the process of trashing at the moment. So they're going to have all the motivation and all the evidence scientifically for systemic change. We've covered so much today that has been this history and broad view of permaculture that comes from your experiences being central to sharing information about permaculture for so long, Maddie. And in the time and space that we have left, is there anything else that you would like to share from your time and experiences or just your thoughts in the moment with the listeners? I suppose my thoughts in in the moment are that when we look out into the world, we can feel quite disempowered and quite small and quite unable to affect change. And it's so important that we rebalance that with doing practical things and teaching ourselves new skills. And so although I have a certain level of optimism, I'm not naive about how difficult the situation in the world is not only politically but ecologically and in terms of poverty and migration and so forth and I I just feel that the way we can what makes permaculture people powerful is our wonderful practicality I was speaking at a conference um, on Saturday which was about putting spiritual values into action through ecological activities and they asked us to take some soil with us so that at the end we could collectively plant four trees and then they could go back to the different corners of of Britain and be planted and I took my soil with me and I took some soil from my wildflower meadow and I took some soil from my raised beds it's a bit like giving someone gold really giving away your soil And I said to the organiser, I made this soil, and they're they're two very different types of soil, but I I made it. You know, this wasn't there when I came to this garden, and I can make more. And so when we hear that we've only got 50 harvests left and, you know, that everything is falling apart, I think we have to go back into really practical, daily, simple living about making your own soil, minimising or, you know, eliminating waste and conserving your own resources and conserving our personal energy. And that's how I keep going and that's how I've kept going for 25 years. So I'll turn off my computer, finish my projects at the end of the week and then my agreement with myself and with Tim is that 
you know, we're going to spend a good proportion of all our free time outside, in the landscape, um, in our garden, building soil, planting things, harvesting, and just being really connected with the earth in a simple way. And I think that is what we do. And that is what defines us as permaculturists, that we are fundamentally practical. So we might have vision and we might have, you know, deep philosophies about life. But fundamentally, we actually walk our talk and we do what we need to do in our own lives. And that's what makes permaculture special for me is that, you know, we are intelligent. We have fantastic educational system. There's many, many things that we can do better, but we can transform landscapes and gardens and therefore local communities as well. And I think that's very beautiful and something that we need to celebrate as a movement. We don't just talk about it, we do it. Well, Maddie, thank you for those thoughts, for your 25 years of work with Permaculture Magazine and within the Permaculture community, and for joining me today. Thank you so much, Scott. And that was Maddie Harlan, the longtime editor of Permaculture Magazine. You can find out more about her and the magazine at permaculturemagazine.co.uk. And you can order a copy of her book, Fertile Edges, from permanentpublications.co.uk if you're in the United Kingdom, or chelseagreen.com if you're in the United States. I'm also giving away a copy of Maddie's book to a Patreon supporter. You'll find links to all of those, including the giveaway and many of the people and organizations mentioned during our conversation today, in the show notes at thepermaculturepodcast.com. I enjoyed my time with Maddie because of her long history in the permaculture movement, and getting to hear directly about her role as a curator of so much useful information for our community. Permaculture continues to exist and grow because of her efforts and the team at Permaculture Magazine. Generations of permaculture practitioners came to the movement by picking up a copy of the newsstand. And that includes me, though I originally found permaculture in the 1990s, When I started exploring sustainability, primitive skills, and rewilding again in the mid-2000s, an issue of Permaculture magazine was in a stack of periodicals gifted to me so that I could see what was happening in the world. That inspired me to continue my search for a permaculture design course and led me to Susquehanna Permaculture, Ben Weiss, and Dylan Cruz. At the end of that class, more than seven years ago, I started this show. To put it simply, this podcast now exists because of Maddie's work with the magazine editing so many great books, like the ones from Patrick Whitefield, and co-founding permanent publications that made those books available to the world. Her work continues to provide me, and other permaculture podcasters, video producers, bloggers, and authors, those members of our community who were often not a part of those first or second waves of permaculture education and outreach, with a foundation to search out the voices, farms, designers, and scientists that expand and push the edges of permaculture. Maddie continues that legacy of curation and inspiration with Fertile Edges, a collection of her wisdom that provides a view into the past, present, and future of permaculture. Whether you're new to the movement or one of Bill Mollison's first students, I recommend that you pick up a copy today and explore where we were, where we are, and where we can go from here. After listening to this interview, where do you see the permaculture movement in this moment? What trends and changes are you seeing and where we might go from here? Let me know. 
717-827-6266, show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or drop something in the post. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. And while you're getting in touch, also be sure to follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Each one of those are different ways that you can get involved in the conversation and help me decide on who to interview next or what topics to look for. From here, the next episode wraps up the end of the year with a look back over 2017 and my plans for 2018. After that, the first interview of the new year is with Wilson Alvarez to discuss biomimicry and land care through his new work, The Reintegration Project. As this is the last interview of the year, I want to wish you a Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Until we meet again, spend each day by taking care of Earth, yourself, and celebrating with your community.